0: The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Today we're heading back to the town of Viseria, where Dr. Franz Edelman is hard at work in his lab, where he is visited by none other than Count Dracula and the wolfman Lawrence Talbot, both somehow resurrected since we last saw them, and both seeking a cure for their respective afflictions. With the help of his hunchbacked assistant, Dr. Edelman immediately gets to work, believing he can cure Dracula with a series of blood transfusions, and Larry Talbot with a type of mold growing in a nearby cave. Before long, the Frankenstein's monster is discovered still clutching the remains of Dr. Neiman. With Dracula on the prowl and a full moon on the rise, can Dr. Edelman cure them in time? And what of his own sinister urges? Lock your doors, grab your crucifix, and join us as we discuss House of Dracula. To a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive, it's alive!
1: It's alive! You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you?
0: I'll show you who I am, and what I am! <laughs> You're insane. I tell you I killed a wolf. A plain, ordinary wolf!
1: By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it
0: adapted itself to this world. He went for a little walk he could have seen his face. <laughs> Welcome to the Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spectacular characters and films in the Universal Studios Classic Monster series. Today we're talking about the final monster rally, 1945's House of Dracula. I'm the Invisible Dan Cologne, and joining me as always is my co host, the Mr. Hyde to my Dr. Jekyll, Monster Mike Manzi. How are you, Mike?
1: Hey Dan, I've got a weird feeling of deja vu. I feel like we've been here
0: before. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is not coincidental. But as I mentioned, this is the the last of the monster rallies universal produced during this era of the classic monsters it's also the seventh frankenstein film the fourth dracula film and the fourth wolfman film in addition to being a direct sequel to the previous monster rally house of frankenstein but don't expect any logical continuity here mike i mean at this point why would you but we love all of our children here on the monsters that made us even when they don't make a lick of sense or when practically everything from the sets to the music even whole sequences is shamelessly borrowed from other films now Now, Mike, I know we came out of House of Frankenstein enjoying it despite its numerous flaws. Now, this one pulls out all the stops, throws everything at the wall for one last hurrah, but clearly does it as cheaply as possible and as a result has arguably more flaws. Now, did that make it any less enjoyable for you or did you still have a good time with this one?
1: You know, Dan, funny enough, I think I like this one more than House of Frankenstein. This was the first time I'd seen it and I was totally thrown for a loop. Up until they discover the monster clutching the bones of Dr. Neiman, and it's confirmed that this is connected to House of Frankenstein, I I thought this was just a do-over. I thought this was just sort of like, the last one didn't work out the way we wanted, let's try it all over again, call it House of Dracula, focus more on him, and take it a little more seriously. A lot less levity in this film all around and all together. And it worked for me. It's not to say I don't like the other attempt. It's just there was something about this that felt more like the original series. Like, oh, we didn't necessarily get it the way we wanted to in House of Frankenstein. Let's try it all over again. Same exact idea call it House of Dracula, focus a little more on him, have the tone be a little more like the original round of Universal movies. That is to say, I felt a little more on the serious side, not entirely, but I felt like House of Frankenstein definitely was a little more grandiose or trying to be a little maybe campier this takes it way more serious in comparison i like Mustachioed larry talbot what's going on with the dynamics between dracula and uh, the doctor i love onslow stevens as as sort of our new recruit here joining the party there's still flaws we still don't get nearly enough frankenstein's monster here but all in all then i was quite surprised like i was like we already seen this like how can they where, where can they go with this
0: yeah I almost wish it wasn't a direct sequel because of how similar the scripts are. If they had just decided, okay, we're going to try this again, it would at least kind of explain why Dracula is still alive, why um, Larry Talbot is still alive.
1: Why that mansion's still standing, right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: So this is a direct sequel, but you know they don't make any attempt to explain how these things are all still possible. So if they had just not included the Frankenstein monster in that way, maybe it would have been a little more satisfying. We're nitpicking here, right? This is one thing out of many problems that we could nitpick if we really wanted to. And I imagine we probably will. But yeah, I mean, overall, I think I agree with you. I think I like House of Dracula more than I like House of Frankenstein. They both draw from the previous monster, films, right? Everything that's preceded them has has sort of found its way into both of these in some way or another. But where House of Dracula differs is that, you know, we get a new character. Like, we get a new monster here. right? In the form of Dr. Edelman. He becomes, like, a new monster. Now, Jekyll and Hyde have not been a member of this stable of monsters, but we were going to do Jekyll and Hyde. This is kind of like our way of doing it,
1: right? Definitely. Like, I was even thinking, maybe they didn't have the rights, but even if they did, how could you include Another creature on the poster, like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, also. I'm glad they end up going that direction, but I think this might be the only way they could have.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the pacing is uneven. For some reason, we lose Dracula like two thirds of the way into this thing, but at least we have like a new monster in that last third to carry us to the finish line. Yes. Because we don't have a wolfman anymore and the Frankenstein monster is basically catatonic until the, the fa- last, what, five minutes?
1: Yeah, and our new hunchback is beautiful. It's a female. She's not treated as sort of like a monstrous servant in the way Igor or even Fritz were. And uh, she's actually like a scientist, an assistant. Yep. That monster is even off the board, so to speak.
0: Right. I mean, she's considered a monster because of the poster, right? Like how of... Frankenstein, they both include Mad Doctor and Hunchback as the monsters headlining these movies, right? It's Dracula, Wolfman, Frankenstein's monster, the Mad Doctor, and a Hunchback. But this is like the one character in the movie that is billed as a monster, but is not in any way a monster. Not like the Hunchback we saw in House of Frankenstein. Daniel was was arguably you know a villain of that story. The Hunchback we have here, I love that character. She's great. I don't know why she's kind of sort of roped into this monster category, thanks to that poster, but But as a Frankenstein sequel, as a Dracula sequel, as a Wolfman sequel, I would count House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula as sort of the bottom of the barrel sequels for all of those characters. But that's not to say that they're necessarily bad and it's not to say they're necessarily not fun. Yeah. I think House of Dracula, again, it, like it's more fun than House of Frankenstein, but both in their own ways take some pretty big swings. You know, they're shamelessly pulling from everything that's come before sort of like greatest hits compilations. I think I said that about House of Frankenstein. Yeah. But I think it works better here. You just kind of have to get through, you have to cut through the nonsensical stuff. That just comes down to studio frugality and yeah. uh, maybe maybe a little bit of laziness on the screenwriting part. But, you know, they weren't trying to break the mold here. They were just trying to do something that was going to sell tickets put butts in seats
1: that's the main point there is like until the creature from the black lagoon shows up we we ain't getting nothing new like it's all gonna be retreads and and redressed but i don't know if i'm coming down on this movie as harsh as you are as far as its flaws like i actually feel like it's more competent than some of the movies we watch certainly some of the mummy movies
0: Fair enough, fair enough.
1: Yeah, and and like the coincidence definitely is here and strong and things are coming fast and furious. You know, like they're throwing a lot at us and it's a lot to track and everything. But I feel it's sort of more casual and, Believable in some ways than it was in House of Frankenstein, where that was just like wild and crazy fun. This feels a little more planned and plotted. And yeah, they're deriving from things that have come before, but I feel like they're picking and choosing better stuff and stuff that maybe wasn't used as much. Like we get a love triangle here with the monsters, like Dracula yep, and the Wolfman, yep. pretty much in love with the same woman. Like that's interesting. If only she was uh, Princess Ananka, that would be interesting. <laughs> so there's still sort of new things to bring to the table. Like Like our Franz monster, you know, our Jekyll Hyde sort of analog going on here. So it's not a complete and total sort of cash grab as much as previous things have felt in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I've said this in House of Frankenstein, but like, there's a time and a place for these sorts of films where you just want to watch your favorite monsters up on the screen, right? Mm-hmm. You're not looking for anything too complicated. We are a long way away from where these movies were as sophisticated pieces of art, right? Like we're well past that territory. Yeah. And so yeah, I think that there's something to be said for how, how much fun these movies are. If you're just if you just sort of turn your brain off, you just want to watch Dracula, you want to watch your, your Frankenstein monster. And you know, depending on who you're there for, you know, if you're there for the Frankenstein monster, maybe you're disappointed here. But if you love the monsters as a whole, the way we do, I think that this is absolutely one of the more fun mashups.
1: Yeah. To me, this mostly feels like a gift for John Carradine to be able Mm -hmm. to Realize as Dracula this time. If not for nothing, like if you want to see him really like sink his teeth, pun intended, into this role like yeah, right. that alone, I feel is like uh, worth the price of admission here.
0: So I realized like when we introduced John Carradine, however long ago that was, I've always thought of John Carradine as Dracula, and then I didn't realize he really only played Dracula twice for Universal. You know, here and then in House of Frankenstein, and like that's it. I think he's played vampires in other films. I don't know that he's necessarily played Dracula in other films. When I've read up on Horror icons, you know, John Carradine always is part of that conversation because of his tenure as Dracula, even though it's just these two movies. But, you know, in in two movies, he has cemented himself as a pretty solid Dracula.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, Bella played him how many times?
0: Twice, twice. He also played Dracula on stage, which was pretty noteworthy. Most people knew him as the stage Dracula.
1: I hear what you're saying. Like, yeah, Dracula is just that kind of role. I feel like you can make an impression that'll make your career almost, you know, or at least like you've played him. You'll be remembered for maybe not Gary Oldman, But back at this time, I think it was a little more plausible.
0: Totally. So before we get into the history of House of Dracula, I just want to remind our listeners that in our last episode, our friend Brian wrote to us asking what our top five non-universal monsters are. We'll be giving our answers to that at the end of the episode. So be sure to keep listening to the end if you want to hear us talk about that. And if you'd like to send us your own questions or comments to be read on the show, shoot us an email at us at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you and we would love to um, have these sorts of extra conversations, you know, on the show. The monsters that made us at gmail.com. Yeah. Okay. So let's get into the production of House of Dracula. The first indication that Universal was going to produce House of Dracula was an announcement in the, the local Hollywood trades in April of 1944, while House of Frankenstein was still in production. The project was to be titled The Wolfman versus Dracula, with Ford BB producing and directing. I like that. Yeah. I think that if we had gotten a Wolfman versus Dracula, that might be one of my favorite monster rallies, you know? Yeah,
1: it's just dawning on me that they didn't fight in this movie. Not at all. Yep, nope. He had one job.
0: Now, there are no clear details about what the Wolfman versus Dracula might have been but a letter from censor Joseph Breen to Universal producer Maurice Pavard sent in December of 1944 suggests that it would have been very different from what ultimately became House of Dracula. It's also entirely possible that the letter references a completely different script altogether so I, I couldn't find out for sure if this is what it's in reference to but it seems to be the case. Okay. Breen makes mention of a few included folk songs a stake being driven into a body complete with quote ear split screams, and a scantily clad character named Yvonne. That's kind of all the information we have to go on, so could have been Wolfman versus Dracula.
1: Okay, folk songs, gypsies, you know, blood-curdling screams, and women in danger and Dracula and stuff. Yeah, fits the bill.
0: So by February 1946, Universal had settled on the title House of Dracula. They'd commissioned an entirely new script, and Ford Beebe was still in line to produce and direct. Now, for a short period of time, Universal was announcing that Dracula would once again be played by Bela Lugosi. But by the time the film went into production in September, Ford BB's responsibilities had been split up among Paul Malvern and Earl C. Kenton, who both had made House of Frankenstein and who would produce and direct House of Dracula, respectively. And it was decided that John Carradine, who had his trademark shoulder-length hair at that time, would reprise his role for House of Dracula after a haircut, of course. A draft of the script, completed September 20th, 1945, included several scenes that never made it into the finished film, including a scene early on, where Dr. Edelman, he examines the leg of a seven-year-old boy, which he had successfully treated with that mold we hear him talk about. This scene is referenced in the finished film. According to the script, the piano tune that Dracula compels Melitza to play was used as a motif in the film score every time Dracula exerted his vampire influence on her, which I feel like was a missed opportunity. They should have kept that in. That would have been great. Yeah, yeah. In his, quote, vampire state, Edelman's hands transformed into claws with webbed fingers,
1: what? Wait, like webbed
0: hands? Yes, like, like webbed claws.
1: Right, that doesn't happen to a vampire, but he's sort of like between worlds, I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean, we'll get into it, but he strikes me as more of like a half vampire than like a full vampire. So, I mean, as long as we're breaking rules, why not give him webbed claws? Yeah. His dream sequence was longer and much more elaborate with the monster killing Milica and assaulting townspeople. Steinmuhl was also much more belligerent and much more braggadocious. The script also sort of put a date on the events describing a, quote, period of about 1880, even though one of the characters mentions x-rays, despite the fact that they wouldn't even be discovered for another 15 years or so and wouldn't have a standard medical application until after the turn of the century. Yeah, and,
1: and they almost bring up like how the wolfman might be a psychological issue.
0: So the finished script was one of the last to be written by Edward T. Lowe, based on a story by Dwight V. Babcock and George Bricker. If you'll remember, Lowe also wrote House of Frankenstein. So I think that would explain a lot of the similarities between the two scripts. Apparently the following year, he burned all of his scripts, clippings, and mementos in what he called, quote, the great cleansing. Okay. Doesn't sound like he was too in love with his job as a monster writer. (laughs) Oh,
1: man. That's too bad for historians and none of that stuff survived. Oh, well.
0: Production began on September 17th, 1945, and wrapped on October 24th. It took just over a month to shoot this one. Okay. Which is unusual, considering we talked about movies that took a week to shoot. This one took over a month.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's like they're sort of taking their time a little more. It's like, take a little more time. Take a month and a half at least.
0: (laughs) So let's get into the cast. Got Lon Chaney Jr., of course, as Lawrence Talbot, the Wolfman.
1: Yes, this time sporting a mustache and looking a lot leaner than the last time we saw him if you ask me.
0: Yes, well, don't forget, he had like a crippling alcohol addiction. So even though this movie came out five years after his debut as The Wolfman, I feel like he looks much older also. Yeah, yeah. Years have really weighed on him. I
1: thought some of that might have been makeup, but you can't really how thin he looks in this movie you know because we just mentioned a lot about just how bulky and hulky and hulking and you know big he just is and in this Mm -hmm. one he doesn't take up it looks like his suits are loose or something yeah but i did like the mustache it's a good look
0: i think that was like a holdover from inner sanctum and maybe they just didn't make him shave it
1: yeah (laughs) henry cavill situation
0: yeah So we've talked about Lon Chaney Jr. at length um, ever since we, we talked about The Wolfman, but this is Lon Chaney's final horror film. Like We're going to see him again in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, but this is like the last straight horror film for him.
1: I don't know if you've seen his final film, Spider Baby, but that's quite a weird, scary movie in and of itself. So if anyone's out there and wants to see like his final film, it's a really good film
0: actually about to reference Spider-Baby, but I should have clarified that this is his final legitimate horror film with Universal.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I wasn't saying that he didn't make other horror movies. I'm just saying that his last movie was a good horror movie as well.
0: Yeah. Okay. So we've talked a bit about his boozing just a few minutes ago. We've talked also about all of his on-set practical jokes, which had earned him very few friends on the Universal lot. And he was subsequently dropped from the studio payroll after House of Dracula wrapped. And he was pretty much forced to work as a freelancer after that. He was, of course, always able to get roles in smaller horror and science fiction films. But by the 1950s, his drinking had gotten so bad that studios would only cast him as like non-speaking brutes. According to writer-producer Jack Hill, who worked with him on 1964's Spider Baby... I don't remember how the subject of Boris Karloff came up, but Lon said of Karloff, he's not a damn bit better than I am. So he's kind of jealous of Karloff. It wasn't a big extended tirade. It just came up in conversation for some reason, and he was definitely resentful. Of course, the thing Lon didn't seem to understand is that he was an alcoholic and was considered almost unemployable. He didn't seem to realize that when somebody gets that kind of reputation, it makes a big difference. Boris, of course, was not an alcoholic. Boris was just absolutely 100% there. And I have to say, Lon was too when I worked on him with Spider-Baby. For Spider-Baby, he went on the wagon. 100% on the wagon? Well, pretty much. I mean, virtually.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's a very heavy performance and crazy movie and harkens back to like the old Universal stuff as well. So it's good to hear that he was present for that one.
0: So we've got John Carradine as Count Dracula, Martha O'Driscoll as Melitza Morell. She was an American actress for only about 12 years. She was trained as a singer and a dancer as a child. And in 1935, when she was about 13 years old, she and her mother moved out to Hollywood, where she landed her first movie role in a 1935 musical called Collegiate. I would like her in
1: this. She has to do that trance acting and stuff and she's very good I, I i can't wait to talk about one of my favorite scenes the no blink scene and this character's name is very unforgiving melisa morelli is that it or like Melisa Morel?
0: I think it's Melitza morell
1: Yeah, what is up with that name? But Other, <laughs> other than that, uh, yeah, I thought she she was great in this. I, I like how she dotes over the Wolfman, and I like how she sort of
0: counteracts Dracula. Yes, she's a great foil for Dracula for as long as we have him. Yeah, she's fantastic in this movie. To finish her history here, she was featured as a model in a number of magazine ads for Max Factor and Royal Crown Cola, which led to more movie roles. She spent the majority of her relatively short career in musicals with the Universal, RKO, and Paramount. In 1947, she retired from acting, divorced her first husband, and married the president of a Chicago electric company, and lived out the rest of her days as his wife. <laughs> okay. Great as she is, it seems the acting life was ultimately not for her, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, just a job for a while.
0: Lionel Atwill as Inspector Holtz. It's not a Frankenstein movie without Lionel Atwill.
1: Oh man, so good. It's just like being home, you know? It's just like, oh, so glad to see him.
0: Yes. I mean, he's not doing anything we haven't already seen before, but I
1: feel like he's trying to ramp it up a little because he might know it's the last time he's going to be in one of these, like in the title, Dracula or Frankenstein. He, he seems to be pouring it on a little more than usual and I love
0: it. But what I mean is his character is really like the same character he's always playing in these things. But yeah, he's always a joy to watch. I, I never get tired of watching him every time he shows up. So Onslow Stevens as Dr. Franz Edelman. He was the son of a British character actor named Housley Stevenson. Stevens was an American actor of stage screen- and television, who began his career at the Pasadena Community Playhouse before making his Broadway debut in the play Stage Door in 1936. He went on to perform in over 80 films, first as a leading man, and then mostly character roles later in his career. He did a lot of B-level material, including Them in 1954.
1: Excellent.
0: Once the 50s hit, he spent much of his time on television doing a lot of guest spots, usually on westerns, as is the case for so many of these actors. I
1: wonder if he was on Lancer.
0: <laughs> I
1: really love this guy. You know, I was mm-hmm. worried that there'd be too many new characters, right? We have so many to keep track of already. I didn't want too many newbies, but like this guy was great. I really loved him right out of the gate and then as the movie went on, I started to sort of question his motives and what's he all about, but then no, I'm I'm down, I'm on his side and then he turns evil and I'm like, "Oh, I feel bad for him." And it's like a real journey with this character. I like mm-hmm. great inclusion in the cast and yeah, I thought I thought he played really well in this
0: movie. 100%. I think if you break this script down, his arc from beginning to end is is by far the most interesting of anybody else in this story. We've got Jane Adams as Nina. She was an American actress of radio, TV, and film. And she was from San Antonio, Texas, where she studied violin and drama. She was offered a full scholarship to Juilliard, which she turned down to spend time at the Pasadena Playhouse. She got her start on Lux Radio Theater before transitioning to movies with the 1942 short film. So you want to give up smoking. I imagine that was probably uh, one of those like PSAs.
1: Yeah, or educational film or something. Yeah, I
0: I couldn't find anything about it. But her role here in House of Dracula is probably her most well-known. However, she also appeared in early adaptations of DC Comics, two major franchises. You're going to like this, Mike. She played Vicki Vale in a 1949 Batman serial called New Adventures of Batman and Robin, The Boy Wonder, or simply Batman and Robin.
1: Wow, Vicki Vale was around that long ago? Very cool.
0: Yeah, she sure was.
1: Hold on, Dan.
0: Yeah, yeah. What is happening?
1: Because yet another... Batman reference. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I know. We need like a big board. You know, I'm going to start putting pictures and yarn and connecting things. And there's something going on behind the scenes.
0: (laughs) She was Vicki Vale in a Batman serial. And she also played a character in the first Superman TV series in 1953. She was not any like a major character or noteworthy character, but she was in that too. So, you know, she's got connections to Batman and Superman in addition to the universal monsters, which makes her super important (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, and she's great here. So much sympathy for this character just because she's got like the hunchback, but it's not like an impediment or anything. you know, it's not treated as like, like, yes, they want to quote unquote, like cure her for lack of a better word, you know, yeah. but it's not sort of like, she's not an outcast or an outsider or anything. Like she's a scientist. That was mm-hmm. the craziest part. And I think we're missing one girl because we have a blonde and a brunette, but we need a redhead somewhere in here just if they want to be consistent. But other than that, I'm joking. Like, yeah, I really dug this character. She really seemed concerned about the doctor and the experiment and all of that stuff. And and it's kind of like one of the only people who's like, oh Larry's big trouble Dracula's big trouble um this big Frankenstein monster we just found this is even bigger trouble like she's the only one with kind of a level head on her shoulders in this movie
0: and you know what I just what just occurred to me we've talked before on the show about young Frankenstein I think it's impossible to do a show like this and not talk about young Frankenstein but the thing that I love about that movie is how it draws from like all of the different Frankenstein sequels I think it's mostly kind of inspired by son of Frankenstein but it definitely draws from it all of them and there's a moment in that movie where frederick frankenstein says to igor he tells him that he's a pretty gifted surgeon could probably fix the hump and there's no mention of that anywhere in any other frankenstein movie this is the only one that features the frankenstein monster and a scientist who is actively trying to quote unquote cure the hunchback and so i wonder if that was included for that reason. You know what I mean? I wonder if it was just a coincidence. I can't tell. Was Mel Brooks drawing all the way from House of Dracula when he made Young Frankenstein? Yeah, definitely. Like,
1: I think we even talked about it. I think he was trying to Again, like the best parts of all of these are the things that stick with you most.
0: I would love to learn that that's where that moment in Young Frankenstein came from. But, you know, who knows? I, I think it's cool that there's a parallel there, you know, between this and and Young Frankenstein. I, I didn't expect that. Moving on, we've got Skelton Nags as Steinmuehl. We have seen him before. He's back. <laughs> he was the cabbie that we noticed in The Invisible Man's Revenge. He has a distinctive face, impossible to miss him. We didn't really go in depth. For him at that point But he's a major player here So he was born in England Where he was trained as an actor At the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art And naturally being British Became a Shakespearean actor Eventually he moved to Hollywood Where he found work as a character actor Thanks to that distinctive face he had And the charismatic voice He was often cast in sinister roles No surprise Such as House of Dracula And several of Val Lewton's films Including Ghost Ship in 1943 I
1: just gotta say one thing about Skelton Nag which the name definitely matches the man. Perfect name. Yeah. And he's playing like an Asgardian Steinmall. Like, what <laughs> is up with that name? To the Rainbow Bridge, please. Steinmall. Like, so weird. Yeah. I mean, I recognized him instantly. And he just gives a great overall vibe for what has happened to this town and his residents it just seems like undesirables are the only ones able to live here anymore and like no respectable person is like taking up residence anywhere near this town these days
0: yeah he's the perfect town spokesman right you get all the information you need to know about this town just by looking at this guy right <laughs> It's great. It's great shorthand, visual shorthand. So we've got Ludwig Stossel as Siegfried. Stossel was a Jewish actor born in modern-day Austria, which was considered Hungary at the time. He was one of many who were forced to flee Europe once the Nazis came to power. He, of course, began acting in German films, but once he came to Hollywood, he quickly found work in American films such as King's Row, starring Ronald Reagan and Anne Sheridan and Claude Rains, Pride of the Yankees, where he played Lou Gehrig's father, and perhaps ironically, Casablanca where he played Mr. Luktag, who was leaving Europe for America with his wife.
1: Wow, how about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's art mirroring life, right? He did a few anti-Nazi films, including the Douglas Sirk film Hitler's Mad Men and The Strange Death of Adolf Hitler, both released in 1943. Later in his career, he became known for a series of commercials for Italian-Swiss colony wine, where he was their spokesman, dressed in an alpine hat and lederhosen.
1: Okay, good for him.
0: I found one of these commercials. I thought this was funny, especially on the heels of our Mummy's Curse episode, that we have another actor who was like most well-known for being a, a commercial spokesperson. But I did find one of these commercials. I'm going to put it in the show notes, but it's worth checking out. It's pretty funny. Excellent. We've got Glenn Strange returning as the Frankenstein monster for all five minutes of that.
1: Yeah, like, is it Glenn Strange? I think this is just an honorable credit. It could, for all intent and purpose, just be an animatronic. Like, this is egregious, you know? Like, this is the one thing that truly bummed me out about the movie, but we'll get there.
0: Okay, and so that's pretty much it for the principal cast, but I wanted to include this man, Carrie Lofton. You'll appreciate this, Mike, being such a fan of the old stunt work. Oh, Yeah. Kerry Lofton was Onslow Stevens' stunt double. Oh, okay. He came to Hollywood in 1935 and racked up nearly 400 credits over the course of his 55-year career, including doubling Karloff in House of Frankenstein. Other highlights include *Patent*, Vanishing Point, The Taking of Pelham 123, and The Dead Zone. Oh, all great movies. I basically just picked the top four off of his IMDb because they were the most recognizable, but he's got a very long list. You should check them out. It's incredible how many movies he worked on.
1: He's a real Cliff Booth. Did he do the stunt for Lon Chaney, the big dive, I call it? I wonder.
0: I don't know, but he definitely did a stunt for Onslow Stevens, which I'm getting to. Okay. In addition to having his face made green for House of Dracula, he also had long fingernails for the scene where he fights Ludwig Stossel's stunt double in the runaway wagon. When preparing for that scene, he put on hip pads, but he didn't tape them to his body, which would have been standard practice. He was trying to avoid having his leg hairs yanked out by the tape. But as he tells it, quote, I learned a lesson there. The runaway wagon cut across a cobblestone street. And when it cut across the curbing, that was our cue to kick ourselves out. Well, one of my hip pads slid out and, oh man, really took a big chunk of skin off. There were all these cowboys around the director and the camera and Sailor, who was the other stunt double. He got up and said to him, why didn't one of you guys speak up and take that stunt job? Nothing to it. I said, sailor, speak for yourself. That day I learned, never mind pulling some hairs out of your legs after you're done. When you do something like that, you got to tape those pads down so they don't move. Tape them so they're there where they'll work.
1: Yeah, or or I would imagine just like shave your legs if you're going to have to do this all day or something like that or a couple times or if it's, I don't know but yikes man <laughs> yeah that's a thrilling sequence I can't wait to talk about that
0: it was the first time I ever actually got like a little backstory to a, a stunt really and I had to include it you know you know how we love our stunts
1: well we did have that great story about how they built an entire house just to set it on fire over and over again in <laughs> that's <the movies>. <laughs> that, was, that was a great little nugget
0: that's pretty much it for the cast House of Dracula was released on December December seventh, 1945, on a double bill with a western called The Dalton's Ride Again, also st- starring Lon Chaney Jr. and Martha Driscoll.
1: Really? This was released on a double bill? Yes. That's pretty wild. I don't know. To me, that kind of feels like, yeah, it, Universal Monsters have been knocked down a peg. Like They can't even hold an open on their own. Nope. Yeah. This was the first movie to do that, right?
0: It was the first one, I think, to be released right out of the gate as a double bill. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Ah, that's rough. All right. But at, at least, I mean, it's good for those two actors, you know, they get a big payday that weekend. Right. I mean, nowadays they would, I guess they already got paid.
0: It turns out that Lon Chaney wasn't the only member of the cast of House of Dracula with a sad post-Universal monster story to tell. Uh-oh. It turns out that a number of people involved with this particular film had a pretty rough future ahead of them, almost as if they were just cursed for being part of it. It's going to get a little heavy, unfortunately, but I felt compelled to include these stories as a sort of coda, since this is, in all likelihood, the last we'll be talking about any of these people as major players in any future Universal Monster movie. Okay. So director Earl C. Kenton was forced to retire from the film industry due to Parkinson's disease. I'm not sure exactly when he was diagnosed, but his last film was released in 1951, and then he did go on to direct some TV up until about 1960. He ultimately died from the disease on February 6, 1980 at the age of 83. Wow. So, Onslow Stevens died on January 5th, 1977 at 74 years old from pneumonia after suffering a broken hip. According to his wife, he was a victim of abuse at the hands of his fellow residents at the Van Nuys nursing home where he was being treated for a heart ailment. The coroner confirmed that he had died, quote, at the hands of another other than by accident. What? He was murdered? He was murdered in a nursing home. What?
1: That's insane.
0: So I guess the pneumonia that he suffered from that broken hip was a result of whatever the incident was. Yeah. I see. I see. Jack Pierce, legendary makeup artist. He had always been very much stuck in his ways and was unceremoniously let go by Universal in 1947. And he was replaced by Bud Westmore, who was utilizing much more modern makeup techniques. Pierce did manage to find work for a while, usually on low-budget B-movies, such as The Brain from Planet Aris and Teenage Monster before ultimately ending up on television as the makeup man for Mr. Ed. Wait, what? Yeah.
1: Mr. Ed, what makeup do you have to do for that? Is that not a real horse? Like, is that like a cow that they turned into a horse? <laughs> I don't know that
0: the makeup had anything to do with the horse. I think it was just kind of regular. It wasn't, obviously wasn't monster makeup. It was just-
1: I was mostly joking, but it's just, that's sad to hear that that he wound up on Mr. Ed.
0: His reputation was that he had his methods, his techniques, and, and he just kind of refused to evolve with the times and so that's why he was ultimately let go gotcha gotcha you know we've talked about it plenty of times that he was very difficult to work with Uh, a lot of actors complained about his temperament you know he was kind of a dickhead but we can't deny that he created some of the most iconic movie monsters of all time so i mean it's the other side of that coin he died july 19th 1968 and according to the los angeles times his funeral was a quote sad affair According to the LA Times, quote, a minister who had never met Pierce was bravely trying to eulogize him, but said little more than a few prayers and some kind words. In the audience of 24 people, only three were makeup artists. His union brothers sent flowers, but most found it inconvenient to say farewell in person. Hollywood bid farewell by staying away, end quote. That's-
1: wild because like he deserves you know a parade or something <laughs> like a big tribute or something at the Oscars. And maybe it's just like a different age I guess attention's off you and it's on something else and that's that.
0: Now he is credited as the director of makeup on the next film we're going to talk about, She Wolf of London, but I suspect he had very little to do with that production. I'll bring him up if necessary but I feel like this is probably the end of the road for Jack Pierce. Even Universal's European Street on the Backlot which had been used as far back as the original Frankenstein met an unfortunate end in 1986 when it was destroyed in a fire which investigators determined was set deliberately it took firefighters almost a half hour to control the fire since much of those old sets were made of dry old wood and foam universal estimated the damage to be around 2.5 million dollars
1: crazy crazy it seems like you know every decade or so or you know knock on wood this doesn't happen but i feel like there's been a couple movie backlot fires in my lifetime
0: there was a universal fire that was not that long ago
1: yeah that took out the back to the future set right that town square or something
0: they managed to salvage that as far as i remember but yeah you're right it was involved in that particular fire
1: crazy stuff
0: and finally perhaps worst of all was the fate of lionel atwill who died of bronchial cancer six months after house of dracula wrapped
1: that's way too bad
0: and here's the thing things had really started to turn around for him around that time the sex scandal which we had mentioned on a previous episode was behind him he was newly married and at age 60 became the father to a little baby boy
1: whoa he's like who is that like tony randall style having babies (laughs) up until the 70s and shit. But in February
0: 1946 he became too sick to continue working and was dropped from Universal's serial Lost City of the Jungle and replaced with a double. According to his good friend Reginald LeBorg, quote I saw him once when he was very sick with cancer at the end about a week before he died. He must have lost 30 pounds and he was pale and he was lying in bed. He was very bitter. He knew he was going. He wanted to live because of his son and he loved Paula. It was very tragic because instead of being quiet and giving up his soul he became mad at the world uh that's too
1: bad man he deserved better it sucks too because like there's no more new stuff you know he's done gonna miss him yeah i feel like he's almost as integral as you know one of the monsters yeah he's not playing the burger master like what's the point
0: like we always say like it's not a frankenstein movie without lionel atwill it's like he's got to be in him but yeah this sadly is is his last universal monster movie he eventually died on april 22nd 1946 house of dracula was his final film although he did receive credits for lost city of the jungle and the 1946 film genius at work no idea how much he actually worked on that final film but as far as i know house of dracula was the last one where he was fully present
1: sounds like they ed wood him for his final performance right like sounds hired like a, it yeah. hired a double and just you know filled in the gaps
0: oh that would be my guess yeah all right well let's get into the movie yeah so we still have the same universal logo mike but i don't know if you noticed the music is different how
1: could i not notice of a- worse i noticed i jumped up from my couch
0: so instead of like that big universal fanfare that sounds like a superman theme we get house of dracula score now i say house of dracula score this score is an amalgamation of like a lot of other previous scores right i don't think there's any real original music except maybe that piano bit that Melitza plays everything else is drawn from other movies but i like
1: that because that reminds me of modern films especially stuff like star wars where every character has their own theme like in this movie we almost get something like that where we have wolfman's theme and dracula's theme
0: yeah so this music we hear at the beginning i'm not sure specifically where it's from but it is definitely not original to this movie i love that they start the music right away as opposed to waiting for the universal title yeah i love the drippy credits we get
1: oh yeah the font is incredible like this this font needs to be revitalized and things and put on t-shirts like this is great horror drippy font
0: Hell yeah. And so the movie opens with a very curious sequence. Dracula arrives in bat form before transitioning into his human form. And he just starts gazing into the windows of this house. It's like a castle house sort of thing. Spying on Melitza and just sort of lets himself in. It's like the weirdest thing I've ever seen Dracula do.
1: So I like some of the concept here. Like I love the idea of it starting with the giant Dracula bat flying into screen the is okay I think I mentioned before I wish they'd just go full cartoon with it because the transition always works like yeah. I love the bat turns into Carradine I almost was like wait a minute like it was so smooth I actually rewound it but this is very strange because we don't know yet that he knows Melisa but he just like goes and looks at her and it's like oh okay it's this must be his new Mina but then he just lets himself in to the Dr. Edelman's place like you can't do that (laughs) you're a Dracula like you're not allowed to just let yourself in he has to invite you in I was like, what's up with that?
0: But even if you ignore the whole rule of, you know, vampires need to be invited in, the fact that he just like walks into this stranger's house like it's no big deal is amazing to me.
1: He's also kind of Dracula the magician with the top hat and and the bow tie. Pretty cool. I like the look for. It's a good look for Dracula, you know. Like he is sort of magical magician man and, and everything. But you're right. Like he just being ease, breaking and entering, like waltzing in this dude's house and start like just kind of like he's like, excuse me.
0: Yeah, and that's the other thing is that we're meeting Dr. Edelman in this scene also, right? See, he's sleeping in an armchair with his cat. The cat notices Dracula, freaks out, runs out of the room when like Edelman sees Dracula standing in his living room. He's like at first kind of alarmed but like very quickly is like okay let's hear you out yeah it's five
1: in the morning we first of all dracula should have showed up at like two in the morning right you only got like an hour and a half to to tell him what you need to tell him and yeah dr edelman is like this happens all the time i guess because at first he's just like what are you doing here this is my house and dracula you know presents himself as baron latos then edelman's like and how can i help you I'm like, this is wild. This is called cutting to the chase.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Edelman is so casual about this whole thing, about somebody breaking into his home and asking for help. So Dracula starts sort of like asking him about vampirism. And we learn that Dr. Edelman is kind of like a scientist of some renown. I don't think he has like a specific practice like other scientists we've met in the past. He seems to be like a jack of all trades, medically speaking.
1: Yeah, he knows a little bit of everything, it seems like psychology, Medicine. Yes. Surgery. All that.
0: But, but for whatever reason, Dracula goes to him asking for help to cure him of his vampirism.
1: Yeah, that's a crazy plot. Like, I love that, though. You know, I, I wish it took its time a little more. And this scene wasn't so clunky because I love this concept of, like, Dracula's like, I'm ready to be human again. Like, I'm just done.
0: I kind of want to ask you about that, Mike. I might be, like, jumping ahead a bit. But, like, we realize that once this process has started, Dracula is not about stop being Dracula, right? right? So it makes me wonder, is he really looking for a cure for his vampirism? Or was he Mm. just trying to embed himself into the lives of Dr. Edelman, and Melitza and Nina, you know what I mean? Was that his motive all along? But we don't have time to set up this world weary Dracula,
1: right? Yeah. So
0: it's I'm not sure if it's the fault of the movie just trying to like streamline everything. Or if he's just faking this desire to want to be cured i can't tell
1: right so at this point i believe him um i'm sort of taking everything at face value with these movies all the time sure Um, (laughs) but i do think you're right because like once we find out in a couple scenes that he knows melisa that he does have a plan here it's sort of like the mystery of like what's dracula actually up to Um, and we do find out Uh, eventually I suppose but I I don't know because he goes along so long and so far with the cure stuff to the point where Edelman like finds a cure (laughs) like so that's very wonky I'll I'll admit plot holes are some of the best things about these later movies.
0: This whole show is us having conversations about like the corners where they just didn't think to expand on, you know what I mean? Like these gaps in in logic, honestly, some of my favorite stuff to talk about here. But another thing that strikes me as really strange is that Dracula's coffin is already in the basement yeah like he's already moved in he's decided this is where i'm gonna be
1: so that's why i thought maybe this was uh, i was like immediately i was like is this the same castle as the last time like are they doing the same movie is it a, like i couldn't tell what was really going on timeline wise because i was like oh maybe it's just been there no Dracula snuck it in before so so he needs Dr Edelman to like guard him during the day as well
0: yeah and so this is another reason why I could make the case that Dracula is for real in wanting a cure because like at the end of the movie he like runs back to his coffin as the sun's coming up and like everyone knows where his coffin is it's not the first time that's happened I can't imagine Dracula consistently just putting his coffin where people know where it is and then he's just gonna antagonize them I think I have to imagine that in this case, he is legitimately seeking the cure, so who cares where his coffin is? It's not until the end when the plan like sort of disintegrates that he oh shit, I gotta get back to the coffin.
1: Because we've talked about better hiding spaces before, but Son of Dracula, like the best right. thing about Son of Dracula was that he was smart enough to hide his coffin under the freaking water right in the bog, you know, like no yeah. one's ever gonna look there.
0: This is a point that supports Dracula being earnest in the, in these first couple scenes. So I don't know, man, but it just strikes me as odd that like he's inviting himself into this house to ask for help after he has already put his coffin in the basement
1: so there's a reveal here too that i thought was gonna be coming at least in a a little while, but no, they go down into the basement and originally he's in there and he's like, Dr. Edelman, like I wish for you to show me your basement. And he's like, yeah, okay, we can go down there. (laughs) And then the coffin's there and then he's like, look on the coffin. It's Dracula's crest. And Edelman's like, oh, what do you know? And then he's like, I'm Dracula. I was like, what are you doing? Like, (laughs) Just assume your identity is Leto's. And then he's like, you know, you gotta help cure me, this and that and all that kind of thing. And so I, I was really surprised that he didn't sort of hold on to his secret identity a little longer.
0: Another thing that surprised me is that for a scientist as renowned as Dr. Edelman, it's like he's never heard of Dracula before. By this point we've met plenty of characters who buy into the vampire thing and count Dracula. It's like he's been living under a rock this whole time.
1: Well that's what's so weird too because as they're going down to the basement they're they're just getting into like a general conversation about the soul, right? Right. He's like, what do you think about the soul doctor? And he's like, well it could exist but I'm a scientist so like I basically am trying to prove things and I can't prove it exists and he's like kind of like vampires, you know? (laughs) And he's like, wait, no one said it any thing about vampires like are you already on to him
0: I mean that's Edelman's thing normally I might hate this but he like sciences the hell out of everything in this movie right like
1: yeah that's some of the coolest stuff
0: (laughs) he explains on a scientific level how vampires can exist how werewolves can exist typically I don't like to have like the magic of a movie like this explained for me you know I like to let it be a magical thing And, and that's not to say that he's entirely right but he's a Scientist trying to approach it from a scientific angle but the lengths to which he goes to really explain why no this is what it is it's a blood parasite or it's you know pressure in the brain right. he goes on these like speeches and i'm thinking to myself okay the movie's really trying to hammer home that these afflictions are curable and i don't want to believe that they're curable science is not going to fix this
1: so two things came to mind watching this movie one was uh spider-man no way home okay where spoilers have you seen it have you seen i haven't again? seen it yet
0: no oh
1: so i don't want to really spoil it then oh i can't really talk about it if you've seen spider-man no way home you might know what i'm trying to reference without saying it but another movie this somewhat reminded me of was it's morbin time like this is like oh, sure. all of morbius is like trying to explain why he's a vampire on like a scientific level you know and like what his powers are and everything but also dan on a very serious tip like the thing that's done this the best and why i was really digging it this time is uh midnight mass right Yes. Not to, again, get into spoily territory, but there's a scene very much uh, in the vein of what, like, Dr. Edelman would be doing in that show uh, in one episode, which is very interesting in sort of describing a particular uh, affliction. I'll leave it at that.
0: I mean, we're going to get into it. I think we're way ahead of ourselves here. But, like, with his solution of, like, the blood transfusions, right? Like, the only other time I've ever seen that brought up and actually work is in Near Dark.
1: Near Dark, yeah. That's you know what
0: so I mean? Funny. Like, it's the only other vampire movie I can think of where a blood transfusion works. Spoiler alert for Near Dark, a 35 year old movie, but.
1: It's <laughs> <laughs> okay. We just went on a spoiling spree there. Yeah.
0: So I love that the whole blood transfusion thing. makes a showing here. I think just really what's strange is just to what degree this movie really tries to use science to explain everything. And like I said, normally I would hate that sort of thing. Here I think it works because you know, we haven't seen it before. Yeah. And I admire Dr. Edelman's persistence. Whatever it is that's put in front of him, he's going to find a scientific explanation for it. And then when something sort of supernatural afflicts him, all that shit goes out the window.
1: Yeah, that's so true. (laughs) I agree though. His gobbledygooks sounds good i believe it it's um it's well written and smart sounding and all that kind of stuff so like when he's talking antibodies and serums and molds and not mummy mold but lots (laughs) of mold and doing this that and the other to your brain yeah i i hundred percent buy it and and i love it
0: so in the next scene edelman's in his lab it's the next day we meet nina his hunchbacked assistant Okay, so in this scene, we get sort of a sense of what he's been working on. He has come across this magic medical mold. I think it grows in a cave, like not far from his house. He's used it to cure the leg of a little boy, which, you know, I talked about before. Later, it will be used to cure Larry Talbot of his lycanthropy. So yeah, this scene really is here to establish the mold and to establish Nina as his assistant.
1: Yeah, two cool things here. First is the intro of Nina because it's a reveal that she's the hunchback. You know, like you just think it's his pretty assistant and then she stands up. And so that was kind of cool. It wasn't like an obvious thing that they were trying to hide either. I like that. And the other thing is like, we're gonna get this crazy miracle cure, like this drug that's gonna basically do everything, yep. like like Star Trek into Darkness, Khan's blood. <laughs> yeah, which is fine. I actually quite like it here in this movie because it's a process. You know, it's not just there. Like they have to find the flower, they have to grow the mold, then they have to synthesize it, and then they have to utilize it and adapt it to the specific person's problem. But they're going to cure a hunchback, a vampire, and a werewolf with this same medicine.
0: If you're going to take away like the sort of magical properties of vampirism and lycanthropy, then you have to bring in something that doesn't exist, right? Like some sort of magical solution, right? Like So the magic just transfers, right? It goes from the monsters into this magical scientific cure. It's medical cure whatever you want to call it this mold is it so I'm glad that we don't just completely science away all of the mystery here we still have this this mold yeah you know this, this is all we hear about it it is what it is
1: it's a good call that they're not just like saying something that already exists in the real world penicillin
0: will cure your vampirism
1: but it's funny you say that because I'm starting to wonder what the themes are sort of trying to be laced through here with all of this medicine talk like has there been advance after World War Two? like was there major advances that they're trying to kind of like reference or something like it just seems like this one in particular is like way more pushy about like we can do this now with science we can do that now whereas other movies seem to sort of say science was like taboo or forbidden don't mess mm-hmm. with science you know that's the fire of the gods and this one it's like we can do everything with science like they've done a complete turnaround on science science with the universal monster movies
0: yeah it's unreal i kind of dig it here i think it's because they did it once you know like if it was a bunch of these i might get tired of it but this is the one outlier so i'll let it slide I'm cool with it. The following evening, Baron Latos slash Dracula arrives for his first treatment with Dr. Edelman. He is reunited with Melitza. They don't fully elaborate on their relationship, but it's clear that they have met before.
1: Yeah, I get the sense that she skipped town. He was getting too close or something and she got like nervous around him. And, you know, now I'm starting to wonder, having watched the movie already, does he have an ulterior motive or did he just happen to see her here and be like, oh, kind of like two birds in one stone. I'll get cured and then I'll get married to her because I'll be human or something.
0: Right. Okay. so Edelman explains to Count Dracula that uh, he's had a chance to examine Dracula's blood and has discovered that there's like this strange blood parasite which could be the cause for his vampirism. His plan is to use transfusions and an antitoxin to sort of counteract this parasite. It's crazy.
1: So would like nowadays they do like a dialysis machine on Dracula to like siphon out the bad blood and Fill him up with new blood, true blood.
0: Yeah. yeah. So we were talking about all the sciencey stuff. This is where that first starts. He explained there's going to be a series of transfusions and it could take quite some time for a full cure, but they begin immediately. And as they are in the lab preparing for their first series of blood transfusions, now Edelman using himself as a donor, which I think is interesting. Yeah. While that's going on, Lawrence Talbot shows up seeking help. He's heard of Dr. Edelman, it appears, and has come to him for help curing his lycanthropy.
1: I really like this idea. I think I'd like this a little more than the traveling road show, just kind of picking up freaks along the way. Right. We have sort of like a central hub that everyone's going to congregate to, right? Like Dracula heard of this doctor, Wolfman heard of this doctor. Like I wouldn't be surprised if the mummy's heard of it and it's just taken him forever to to get there because he walks so slow and tana leaves and the full moon and everything also so like while i'm sort of like shocked at first to be like what is larry talbot doing in the waiting room i'm like oh it kind of makes sense to me it makes more sense to me than i was expecting i'll say that
0: it, it just occurred to me that this sort of has a structure of like a film noir like a private detective right where he takes on multiple cases and then by the end they turn out to be related yeah good call yeah so instead of being a private investigator he's a doctor and everybody who is a monster has heard of him and they're all coming to him for help i feel like there's a sitcom in here they definitely took like the straight approach to this story like as you mentioned at the top of the show but like you could definitely take this premise and turn it into a sitcom
1: oh yeah it, it's like hotel transylvania but it's it's a uh, hospital transylvania right? right like so so it's just every floor is a different creature monster doing something getting hurt getting fixed
0: transylvania general something like that yep larry talbot is kind of shown the door because dr edelman is preoccupied
1: well he's told he could wait he storms out he says there's no time but but the lovely insistent, Melisa is like, you're more than allowed to like wait around. And he's like, no, damn it, no.
0: He storms out. We will find out shortly that he has pretty much just gone straight to the police department, the police office, and uh, asked to be locked up so that he doesn't do any damage to anybody. A story we've heard before in the past. Meanwhile, Dracula and Dr. Edelman are finishing up their blood transfusions. Melisa informs Dr. Edelman that a man named Lawrence Talbot was there to see him, but he left left Perhaps he'll come back. And that's when the telephone rings. And it is Inspector Holtz. So quick how this happens. Informing Dr. Edelman that he has a man in his custody claiming to be a a werewolf and and wants to be locked up. And there's a crowd gathering outside of the police office. And like they're hoping that Dr. Edelman can help in this situation. So now that the police have gotten involved, Edelman heads down there. Inspector Holtz is out there trying to shoo away the crowd. That's where we meet Steinmuel. Yeah, so this was
1: uh, pretty funny because... Because when they're called down to the police station, Holtz is like trying to disperse a crowd. And I'm like, we're already on the verge of a mob.
0: Yeah. Movie
1: just started and everyone is kind of lingering around the police station waiting to do something and Holtz comes out and he's like there's no maniac in here asking to be locked up and nobody here killed anybody like everyone relaxed and then the doctor shows up and he takes him in and he's like actually there is a crazy man here and he is asking to be locked up and I don't know what to do that was amazing
0: I love how this town is looking like a hair trigger man This the slightest thing and they're like ready to grab their torches and pitchforks
1: yeah dude and Heimdale is just like I'm kind con- <laughs> Steinmeier. He is just like, you know, fanning the fires. He's like, something's going on, I tells you. Like, they're not telling us the truth. It's a conspiracy. It's like, man, he's right.
0: And he continues to be right, like this entire movie. But because he's who he is, nobody pays him any mind most of the time.
1: At one point, the cop's going to be like, you thought it was the wolf man. Now you think it's the doctor. He's like, it's both of them.
0: So now Dr. Edelman meets with Larry Talbot, who is locked in a cell. Larry gives him the whole spiel about how he's a werewolf from the full moon.
1: No poem, though. No poem, no, no flower.
0: But this is the first for us. It's the first time anybody has ever watched Larry transform into a werewolf.
1: Yeah. That was awesome. He mentions the pentagram and they're like, so? And he's like, all right, watch this. And I was (laughs) like, you're kidding. This is a great concept, you know? And he changes right before their eyes. So it's like undeniable. I love that. Get that right out of the
0: way. Yep. And Edelman, a man of science, is like, we're going to find a cure. You know, like there's a way to fix this.
1: Yeah. He's like, I can't believe this. Two monsters in the same week. Like, he's <laughs> so famous.
0: But I love, yeah, I love that people finally get to see Larry transform. They don't have to disbelieve him anymore. So that's cool.
1: What did you think of the transformation? Because we only get ahead and I like what they're going for. I don't know if it's 100% successful, but... During the transitions, he's not still. He's sort of moving his brow and his chin. And it gives a cool idea of an effect that that stuff is going on while he's transforming.
0: Yeah, so I think this is the first time we ever see him transform while he's awake. Oh,
1: okay, that's what's up.
0: In previous movies, I know in the first Wolfman, like his first transformation, we see his hands get hairy, his feet change. And then he like takes off into the night. We never see his face change. And then every time we see him change, after that he's like unconscious or very still this is the first time where he's like moving and so i mean it's an okay transformation sequence like it would be unreasonable to expect him to be motionless in that jail cell so i don't really care about the fuzziness of the transitions here but i think it's definitely not the best transition that we've seen so far
1: No, I mean, it's the reason I think why he usually transforms while asleep is so the actor can stay still as they do all the different appliances and the time lapse photography and stuff. But I just thought conceptually this was cool because it looks like he's snarling through it, you know, and like he's reacting as it's going on. And so even though it's not successful, I loved what they were going for because I feel like we see this in future. Wolfman transformations. You're able to read the expression on the person's face much more. becomes much part, more part of the transformation. I feel like in other horror movies and such. So like it was just cool to see them trying to go for something extra.
0: Yeah, in that way, it is an important transformation, and I think they did the best they probably could have given the circumstances. I, I do think seeing his emotion through the transformation is really cool. But yeah, it's the only, it's what one of two transformations that we see in this movie. It's very short on Wolfman. Unfortunately, I think I read somewhere that there may have been a shortage of yak hair, which would have contributed to only a couple transformations. Okay. I also read somewhere that according to Joseph Breen, Larry could not kill somebody as a werewolf and still live at the end. Like that would have been a no-no.
1: I get that. What I don't get is how Jack Pierce hasn't made a Wolfman mask at this point.
0: You would think. Yeah, it didn't stop him from making a mummy mask, but for whatever reason, he he didn't make a Wolfman mask. I guess it would have been harder to shoot a transformation with a mask.
1: True. Yeah, I guess you're right there on that point. But then, you know, does it have to be Yak hair?
0: I also feel like there are other ways to shoot a transformation. They probably could have done it differently.
1: I'll tell you what would have looked amazing is uh, animate it. Sure. Have his transformation just flip and become a cartoon real quick, and then back to Wolfman. I'd have loved it.
0: I actually would love to see what that would look like.
1: It would almost look like Calibos from Clash of the Titans. Have you ever seen that when Zeus transforms him? It's just a shadow and it's like stop motion. It's really cool.
0: So Larry's now hanging out at Dr. Edelman's house awaiting treatment.
1: Yeah, he's getting close with Melisa.
0: He does get close with Melisa. It seems like every woman in these movies, they take one look at Larry Talbot and they just can't resist this sad man.
1: It is. It is like a pheromone thing like a love potion where like the first woman that lays eyes on him can't help herself or something like just
0: i need to save
1: this man he's so emo
0: so larry goes in for his consultation this is crazy (laughs) yeah because they take x-rays of his brain and Edelman determines that there's pressure on certain parts of the brain that can bring about that change that he experiences on the full moon, because you know how the moon affects tides and possibly brain chemistry and all of that. So like that's sort of the explanation here, is that there's pressure on his brain in places that is causing hormones to develop and his werewolf transformation to take place.
1: Yeah. So he says something to the effect of like, you've got a gland or something where you can kind of like you get worked up and your body convinces itself basically that it's a werewolf and it turns into one like that's sort of how i was following it It was like he was like scientifically explaining that like yeah your body's chemistry will alter like you're almost like hulking out
0: yeah so he explains to him that surgery is kind of out of the question because it would be a very long very dangerous process however he's got this magic mold that they've been cultivating in their little greenhouse.
1: His surgery idea sounds very invasive. He's like, we need to enlarge your cranial cavity? Yeah. That sounds painful.
0: The idea would be to increase the size of his head to give the brain more room to breathe.
1: Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. Like, relieve the pressure on his brain by expanding his skull somehow. Right. That's the cure. Love it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Larry just sort of decides all of this is too much and it's, it's not going to help him. Oh God, I shouldn't be laughing, but it's so funny.
1: You really shouldn't, but it finally happened and I couldn't believe it. Yeah. He just,
0: he runs out to the cliff side and just jumps into the water. He
1: straight up kills himself, like tries to kill yeah. himself. Like he's like the doctor, he's like, is this going to take a while? He's like, same thing to Dracula. He's like, it's going to take time. We have to grow enough of the thing. We have to make right, the stuff. Right. You're going to have to, he's like, but there's a moon tomorrow he's like well we'll just we'll lock you up again and then we have time we have like a month or whatever until the next sequence of full moons and he's like screw that i can't take another day of this and he just straight up jumps into the ocean off of a huge cliff like i lost my mind yeah. He'd been threatening to do it for, like, five movies. and
0: <laughs> So that night, Dr. Edelman has, like, an apparatus constructed on the edge of the cliff to lower him down into the water. And he's he's hoping that Larry's still alive. He knows that cave is down there. Hopefully, Larry's still in it.
1: Yeah, that was a cool addition thing where he's like, there's a bunch of caves down there. So just in case, like he survived there's you know we can go find out you know, like plus he might be indestructible we think you know because he's a wolf man but th- this reminds me of rescuing kids that like fell down a well you know yeah, like yeah have, like, i got a lot of that because like the whole town is gathered and we have uh Stalmühl is here again and he's very like curious about what's good he doesn't trust any of this
0: i don't know if they've established it already i know that they will stymul is Zigfried's brother
1: and Siegfried works on the doctor's property.
0: Instead. Right. So, I mean, it doesn't fully explain like what he's doing there, but it makes sense as to why he would be like with his brother. So,
1: Hey, yeah, the more skeleton nags we get, the better. So, any reason whatsoever.
0: Edelman gets lowered down into the water, finds himself in this cave where he is assaulted by the Wolfman. This is where I'm a little bit confused. Mike, maybe you can help me here. The Wolfman attacks edelman and as he's like choking him out he starts to transform back into larry talbot now this is at night with the full moon up in the sky are we to believe that the fungus or the mold that's in that cave is what made him transform back into larry
1: i have an even crazier theory which i don't love this but i mean i think in those in the movie it makes sense because I wondered why he passed out in the cell after transforming. And I wonder why he transformed back now in the cave. I think it's something to do with being outside or like in proximity of exposure to the moon or something. Like he's down in this cave beneath the earth. So he's like further from the moon and he can't see. see it. So possibly he turned back. I don't really know. But because I love the idea of this sequence i don't really care either like just the idea of him turning back mid throttle like he's choking him to death and he changes back and he stops i really like that idea so i'm willing to let them fudge whatever reasoning plus like you said we do find out about like these herbs and things are growing nearby so we could say that as well so i'm just glad that we can come up with some answer
0: yeah, I don't I don't think the movie gives us like a clear explanation. It's very strange. But they realize that the cave down there is very humid and sort of like a tropical climate, which is exactly what they need to grow more of this mold, these spores. And they find the Frankenstein monster. I knew they were going to find it. I
1: knew it was going to be down there.
0: Yeah. So the last time we saw the monster and Dr. Neiman, they were sinking down into some quicksand. Quote, years ago, Dr. Edelman references it like it was years ago that it happened. I'm not sure how much time has passed.
1: It's like, dude, you basically bought the house next door. It's kind of the house, actually. I don't don't know how it's still standing or like it's built on top of the old house possibly that's kind of a cool idea that this was built over the remains of the old mansion
0: possibly i don't remember that old mansion being right next to a cliffside
1: wasn't there like a dam that no longer exists or something so maybe erosion like wiped away a whole part of
0: that was in frankenstein meets the wolfman which was like two frankenstein movies ago but wasn't this the same town
1: Anyway, I'm glad they find the monster. It's nice and neat. And I love the way it looks clutching the skeleton. That's very macabre. Like, I don't really feel like we've seen a lot of like bones in a lot of these
0: no 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 and I love that they find a hidden staircase in that cave too that leads up to the house
1: there's gotta be this is also where I wrote in my notes this is a sequel to House of Frankenstein this isn't just like because I, as, that would be unprecedented maybe the Exorcist 4 is the only movie to have like two directors direct the same script but like it would have been like that kind of situation where it's like uh, eh, we don't like the way it came out let's just make the whole movie all over again
0: so the next scene we're back up in the lab. We've got to spend some time with the Frankenstein monster now that we found him. And Edelman, at first, is very interested in bringing the monster back to life. The way he views it is this is a living thing. If I try to kill it, that's murder. I can't. I'm not a murderer. But Nina and Larry, they're like the voice of reason. Think about your fellow man. You have a responsibility to them if you bring this thing back to life. It's only going to cause more havoc, probably kill some more people. The lives of the many outweigh the lives of the one, you know?
1: I really like this scene. It's like he's juicing up the monster he's charging him up and then everyone's like are you sure we should be doing this and they have like this little chat about like you signed an oath and like all this stuff like you're not this kind of guy he's like you you help people this is just gonna cause more pain
0: this is the first scientist who has discovered this monster this creature and wanted to bring it back for just purely humanitarian reasons
1: yeah everyone wants to unlock the secrets of everlasting life and they want to like harvest all of it to figure out the secrets like it's Akira or something, right? And, like, keep it (laughs) future generations under the freaking, you know, Olympic Stadium and shit. But, like, no, yeah, like, this is a sleeping dog. You got to let this one lie for good.
0: Yeah, and he eventually does come to see that as being, like, the more logical course of action right like he's like you're right if it's going to mean death and and destruction and all those things then maybe you're right I can't allow this thing to live so he does come to see the light by the end of this scene which is cool I do appreciate that his motives initially are pure he just sees it as another life and wants to help it however he can so Dracula returns the following night for his second round of blood transfusions and this is when he has his big scene with Melitza she is at the piano playing Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata when he walks in and starts to make his move.
1: Yeah, this is really interesting stuff. Like Dracula never really finds out that Larry is also interested in her, which makes it an even sort of cooler love triangle when like people are like oblivious about right. the other sides of relationships and things like that. And he's really going for it here, you know? Like she's playing the song, he starts hypnotizing her, and she starts playing music she's never played before. Like that's really creepy and eerie and like I don't like that he's forcing her to do these things with her mind and stuff but like it's a cool use of showing his powers I can make you see and hear and feel things that only I can and I exist sort of in another world or something like that so like you're getting a taste of the unnatural life or whatever he calls it the non-material
0: Do you think this is the scene where he starts to have second thoughts about curing his vampirism because he starts to use his influence Influence, right, to make her play that song and you know, he's getting closer to having her and you know, she pulls out the crucifix, which he can't expose himself to that, right? As soon as he sees it, he sort of like withdraws. But I think he realizes that he can only have her if he can maintain that influence over her.
1: That's interesting. See, then I wish that he did know that Larry and her were sort of also possibly gonna get together because it would give him more of like a reason to make her a vampire or something, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. That way Larry can't have her in But this is a difficult egg to crack because I still believe he wants to be cured up until he finds out that later on he's going to be double-crossed. Like, I just feel like it's almost vampire instinct. He can't help himself. And these are sort of some of the reasons that he wants to be human is like, he wants to be with her, but like, maybe not like this. Like, this is just that vampire, like, I can't help myself. It's the only thing he knows at this point because he's been one for so long. Maybe.
0: Right. Interesting. It's tough. It's complicated. I don't think the movie ever expected no. anyone to go in this. I was just about to say, I think we're examining it way more than anybody ever expected anybody to.
1: But like, there is more here that they just can't say with their time or money or whatever, but like you can feel it in a lot of these universal movies. They want to say more than they can. So I feel like that's one reason they're overloaded is that they just have so much to say and don't know how.
0: So Melitza goes to draw like a blood sample from Dracula. And in that conversation, see, like, I mean, this, this sort of confirms my suspicions a little bit in that like he asks her to forsake the cross and like, you know, come to his world. And she feels like she wants to, but she's afraid. And I'm thinking, all right, if he's saying things like that, how serious is he about not being a vampire anymore?
1: That's a sticky situation, but I never feel like she wants to with him on her own accord i don't even at this point feel like she's necessarily in love with larry but i don't feel like she likes dracula for being more than anything than like a business acquaintance, someone that works with my boss, like doesn't even want to go have a drink with this guy.
0: Really. So before he can really do anything about it, Doctor Edelman comes in with some test results. He lets Dracula know that the latest, like, sample has like evidence of um, like these new antibodies that could be doing the work that he expected them to do. You know, like we might be closer to a cure for this vampirism.
1: Very timely reference with the antibody being thrown around a lot. I was like, oh, that kind of grounds it in a weird way. (laughs)
0: Right. But Melitza and and Nina are out collecting spores for Larry Talbot. Melitza is still kind of like under that hypnosis, though. And so she decides she's gonna go to bed for the night, but has kind of like a dizzy spell
1: yeah going up the twisty stairs, yeah I just gotta say, like I feel like they should be wearing masks in this room because there's so many fumes flying around, and it's all from these spores and and who knows what is going through their bodies, but how funny would it have been if the end of the movie Nina was cured just from working down there so much and and like being <laughs> overexposed to the plant like that would have been kind of a funny twist but that would be
0: awesome this is where nina discovers some pretty big things about dracula here so Melitza makes her way into this like hallway she's with dracula and then he leads her to wherever they're going and this is where nina notices in the mirror this giant mirror that's behind them that Melitza has a reflection baron latos count dracula does not have a reflection
1: Very cool, very nice, super easy to do. Like, I think we've done that shot in college and stuff, but so effective in the moment. Like it was the perfect shot for the moment and like the perfect time to use that effect.
0: It's a great sequence. The mirror shots with Dracula are always really cool. I really liked this one. Super effective. And so Dracula escorts Melitza out into the courtyard and Nina immediately runs to Dr. Edelman to explain to him what she just saw.
1: Yeah, he's a Dracula. The doctor's like, I'm trying to cure monsters here, you know, but I'm putting you at risk. Maybe I should cut my losses here. Larry seems a little bit easier to deal with anyway right let's put a stop to this Dracula he's messing with my assistants you know he says he wants to be cured does he really want to be cured like what's his bottom line here I want answers and I want answers too so I'm with this doc
0: yep like he believes Nina and immediately decides that whatever cure he was working on like that's gone he's now focused on destroying Count Dracula
1: and he doesn't just straight up go downstairs and destroy his coffin and throws dirt into the backyard all over the place that's what i would have done
0: well no he's a man of science not a man of superstition although yeah he should have probably just burned the coffin right then and there but no he decides he's going to bring dracula in for another transfusion and with the transfusion he's going to kill dracula The
1: doctor found out that, like, they are indeed antibodies from his blood, right? So he says to Dracula, we're going to do the transfusion with me. We'll do another transfusion. But I think he wants to trick Dracula, like, halfway. He was just, was he just going to drain him or something? Like, I'm a little unclear here, too. I don't think the movie quite tells us what the doctor intends to do, does he? But it doesn't even really matter. He should have just destroyed the coffin in the first place.
0: (laughs) He's either going to drain Dracula or maybe inject him with so many antibodies as to cure the vampirism like for good so that he's he no longer has that influence over Melitza, no longer has his other vampire abilities and all that it's a little bit unclear but we do know that dracula is on to everybody and during the transfusion he uses his like influence to knock nina and edelman out and when they pass out, he sort of reverses the transfusion and instead injects Edelman with some of his own blood.
1: Yeah, and there's that really cool blur effect where he knocks out Nina with his like hypnosis, and the screen slowly starts to like blur all the way across, so she like can't see. That was weird. I don't know if that was like a mistake or something, but I thought it was cool.
0: It's a very strange effect. It's almost like a split diopter, except they just blurred half the screen. It's an interesting effect. I'm not entirely sure it was effective or what what exactly they were trying to convey there, but I think it looks kind of cool. But yeah, once they're passed out, Dracula moves some of his own blood into Dr. Edelman, effectively turning him into like a half vampire. They never really explain it. The rules are not consistent with Edelman's affliction.
1: Yeah, he kind of becomes like a ghoul. Like almost like when you hear about like vampires whose victims can't fully turn, right? right. And they sort right. of become like this in-between monster-ish thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, in practice, we've mentioned he's more of a, a Jekyll and Hyde because it comes and goes. So in the daytime, he's his normal rational Self, and then in the evening, he turns into this wild, monstrous creature of the night.
1: Yeah, he just like kind of has a bloodlust.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's really what it boils down to. He's not there to drain anybody of their blood. He's really just, he turns into like a madman, right? Just on a murder spree
1: Turns into Don Draper
0: (laughs) Once Nina and Dr. Edelman come to They rush out to capture Dracula He transforms into his bat self And then he heads up to Melitza's room Where she's like still in her trance state Edelman comes rushing in with a crucifix Then Larry Talbot hears the commotion He comes into the room And then Dracula just like runs through the balcony Down the stairs to his coffin As the sun is coming up like, again, why would you antagonize a bunch of people who know where your coffin is?
1: I like that they saw him turn into a bat and fly away this is one of the things i liked about this movie so much is like there's no secrets anymore like no one's trying to hide anything you know it's like in Zack schneider's man of steel they call superman clark right like in front of yeah, everybody yeah. that's one of the things i loved about it like this is so cool where like Dracula's just like you want to see some shit like watch this i'm mean, gonna turn into a bat right in front of the werewolf is like you want to see some shit check this out <laughs> into a werewolf like right in front of you. Like, I'm loving that.
0: The thing that I find most interesting, given Dr. Edelman's allegiance to the laws of science, is that once Dracula gets into his coffin, Edelman looks out the window. The sun rays are coming through into the room, and he's like, you know what? Fuck science. We're going with the stories, and he drags the coffin into the sun and opens the lid, and Dracula disintegrates right there in front of him.
1: That's a really funny point that you just made there, Danny. He's just like, suddenly is like, you know what? I'm gonna go all Van Helsing on his ass (laughs) right about
0: now. (laughs) At a certain point, you gotta give it up and just trust the stories, you know? Yeah. I was
1: a little disappointed that we didn't get, like, a final death gasp or something. Like, John Carradine didn't, like, throw his arms up and scream and we didn't get, like, flames superimposed on top of him or or any shot of, like, the coffin on fire or any of that.
0: It definitely plays like they didn't know that this would be the last Dracula. By this point the monster movies were lucky to be made and they were just it's like one at a time you know we'll make one we'll see how it does maybe make another one there was no grand scheme here they were just like maybe we'll do another dracula maybe we won't so it is a bit unfortunate that dracula doesn't get a better exit it's also unfortunate that he's out of the movie now we have more than a third of the movie left and there's no dracula in house of dracula
1: it's not his house anymore I mean, it never really was. It never really was his house. We have like a half vampire to fill in his place. And we, I guess, yeah. And we're about to cure the wolf, man. So what is going on?
0: <laughs> Once Dracula is out of the picture, the movie wastes no time in getting right to Edelman, right? And whatever's going to be happening with him. There's a great sequence where he's standing in front of his bedroom mirror And there's dark makeup around his eyes. His hair has become a little more disheveled. And he looks at himself in the mirror and his reflection starts to fade like Marty McFly in that photograph.
1: Definitely. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, it almost looks like he starts to rapidly age or something with the darkening of the eyes.
0: It's very like silent era
1: makeup, in my opinion. That's a good call. I was definitely instantly getting Jekyll and Hyde vibes but i was also like hey we might not have dracula but we have like dr dracula dr acula basically part vampire so that was cool like it's not that it wasn't missing Carradine, because his performance in this is great. His voice is great. He's very striking. But, like, I was cool with it because it sort of passed on to this guy. And I really liked what this guy was doing. And now he's going to turn in like another level to his
0: performance. Yes. He has a great dream sequence with like swirling fog and water, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. With the superimposed images over top. And we get the sense that we're seeing the good side and the bad side. His Hyde side, we can just refer to them as Jekyll and Hyde for convenience sake his hide version wants to reanimate the Frankenstein monster and like go on a terror spree through the town. And we see this montage of the, of the monster doing exactly that. And, and some of it, like I think half of that is footage from the bride of Frankenstein and a couple others. But then Dr. Jekyll's side of him is fighting that and imagining like he's cured Nina. And we have a great shot of Nina walking down a staircase, no hunchback. And so we're seeing the two sides kind of battle it out in this dream, nightmare montage really cool
1: yeah very very cool use of old footage new footage really hearkening back to german expressionism in the sense of like pure montage and like establishing a mood and an emotion with the images and everything and just the terrific concept of the idea of the his two sides at war with each other right now and that i believe he's split it almost reminds me of like dark man or spider-man sam raimi they'd get sick and have like a nightmare and then they'd wake up and they'd be transformed
0: yeah definitely and it's funny that you mentioned German expressionism because like so much of this movie just looks really cool like yeah in that way with the dark shadows and the the high contrast and all of that and I looked it up and George Robinson shot this you know every time George Robinson shoots one of these we tend to notice the cinematography this one's no different and so now Edelman in his like manic state is hard at work in the lab trying to reanimate the Frankenstein monster Nina is just (laughs) outside the door trying to figure out what's going on but he manages to transform back into his normal self as he gets to the door right so she's knocking on the door like to see if he's all right he changes back into his normal self opens the door and kind of says no I'm, i'm okay everything's fine
1: Yeah, yeah, that was sort of confusing at first, but then it made sense to me that he's going to be switching back and forth. Like at first I thought he just changed for good, but I love that. I don't know that he has control over it, but like he's going to go back and forth. Like that's fun for the rest of the movie.
0: That moment makes me feel like he might have some control over it, which is interesting. Or maybe it's just convenient for that one moment. Who knows? But the next scene is maybe my favorite scene with Dr. Edelman as a character because he knows that he has his own affliction now he's got this thing that he needs to deal with but his first concern which has been his first concern like this whole movie is getting enough of this mold to cure Nina she is still the number one priority and she's the one who says no we have to help Mr. Lawrence first and so he he sort of reluctantly agrees like okay we'll cure Mr. Lawrence but you know you're next I'm gonna heal you
1: yeah he's like you've waited so long and she's like and I can wait a little longer yep
0: love their relationship so much and i think that this is maybe their best scene together
1: yeah and i love that about the doc too is that when he is himself he is true to that version of himself you know and then they use the hide form for him to go like insane and revive the monster and be a dick and everything <laughs> kill people
0: the following night they collect all of the spores we catch this treatment on Larry Talbot at the very end as Dr. Edelman is sort of like wrapping Larry's head back up kind of puts like a cast around his head. Yeah
1: so this is what the movie led me to believe is that I didn't realize it was a cast I thought that was like the experiment like those were the leaves like that he had made him into like a paste and wrapped it around his head and it's going to expand his head because like what was the experiment like did he just inject this stuff into his brain?
0: Yeah so I mean he made it clear that he wasn't going to put Larry under the knife and Open up his skull and, and do all of that. It was going to be the work of this magic mold. But he never really elaborates on what the procedure is. So yeah. all we know is that Larry comes out of it with wrappings around his head because that signifies mm-hmm. that some medical procedure has been done to fix his brain. Yeah. And so there's no full moon that night. So there's really no proof that the procedure worked. But, you know, he has this moment of doubt. He's grateful for everything Dr. Edelman has done, but he's kind of like waiting for. The other shoe to drop, so he's still sad, Larry.
1: Yeah, but I'm I'm just impressed that he can talk at this point. You know, he just had major brain surgery, and he's like seems all right. You know, he's like in his wheelchair, but he's with it. You know, right?
0: So he is just kind of waiting for the following night. Hopefully, the procedure works. But until then, he can't do anything but wait around. But in the meantime, Doctor Edelman transforms once again and takes off into the night. And he sort of ambushes His groundskeeper, Siegfried Siegfried is on like a horse-drawn carriage Going into town Edelman sort of climbs aboard And heads into town with him There's a great runaway carriage sequence here
1: Yeah, yeah And he has like this really scary chat with him On the carriage Where he's like, basically like Don't worry, I'm not going to eat you or anything And he's like, but I am And he (laughs) he, he basically kills Siegfried And as the cart is like uncontrollably going down like the town square so like everybody sees this cart fall over and Siegfried fall out with this guy they don't know it's the doctor they just think it's a maniac and they watch him like choke him to death in the street and run off yep so action-packed so action-packed
0: yeah, once I read the story about how Edelman's stunt double wasn't wearing like his hip pads, I watched that fall. You got to rewatch that sequence and just imagine not having any kind of hip protection there. While they're wrestling around in the back of that carriage, they just sort of fall out. And so the footage is sped up like a lot of these old movies would do during like carriage chases and stuff like that. Even then, it's a pretty hard hit.
1: And everyone has seen this. So what happens? Instant mob. Like, right. They've been waiting. This is just a mad that lit the fire and everyone just goes chasing after the maniac doctor and he's like hiding on the roof. The weirdos are there and like there's this like we mentioned how great this movie looks but there's a shot that looks straight out of the movie M where he's running down the street and the oh, yeah. shadow is on the wall and they're chasing after him and everything and it's like gorgeous like they're shooting at him the mob is enormous this is like again like I'm not used to this much action in these movies especially like for this long like this sequence has been going on for quite some time And like, you know, there's been no rest, really. He jumps on the carriage. It goes through the town. They chase him around and around. He's going to run all the way back to his house. They're going to chase him there. And then he's going to transform back as he sneaks into the house. And then Larry has seen all this happen. He saw him sneak out and he saw him sneak back.
0: When he's running back to the house, he runs across that field, right? He's in the, the whole town is in hot pursuit. And he like hurdles over that fence. It's like the most impressive hurdle I think I've ever seen anybody do it's insane I'm sure he had help I'm sure there's like a block or something underneath to help give him a little bit of help getting over but like it's a pretty intense jump
1: Yeah, you definitely get the impression that he has some kind of superhuman abilities at this point now because like when he was up on the roof and stuff it's like, how the hell did he get up there? You know? And then he just jumps down and keeps running and like, yeah, he
0: seems to be powered up. I'm so glad you mentioned the movie M. Now I want to watch it. Because you're right. This sequence does go on for a while and with George Robinson's cinematography here, it very much feels like one of those like 30s German expressionist films like M. Yeah. Once he returns back to his house, Edelman transforms back to his normal self. And when he returns to the house, there's a knock on the door. It is Inspector Holtz and Steinmuhl. And so what they know is that a madman murdered Siegfried and then they chased him back to this house. And with Larry Talbot there, the natural assumption is that he had something to do with it because they say his throat was torn out as if like ripped out by like a savage animal. And Larry knows like Larry hears that and he's like, well, yeah, of course you're going to suspect me. But the fact of the matter is, is that Larry was unattended for about an hour. The murder occurred 20 minutes minutes prior and was chased back to this house. So like all signs point to Larry. You can't really fault Inspector Holtz here. And and Steinmuel is like convinced it was Larry too, right?
1: So like Doctor Edelman is like you know he's transformed back and it's and it's him they're talking about. So like you could kind of see the guilt weighing on him in this moment, yeah. which is a lot of fun too because like he knows it's not Larry either, and like what can you do? You just no alibi,
0: right? But he he does manage to convince Inspector Holtz that it wasn't Larry, or at least couches
1: for him, right? Yes,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: He's like, well, I was here the whole time. I wasn't the one who did it. So
0: yeah but larry knows what's up because later that night he confronts edelman and and says you know i saw you go out with siegfried why didn't you say anything and now i guess larry feeling some sort of obligation out of gratitude wants to help edelman
1: that's what he tells him he says why are you helping me because you helped me and then he's like yeah but i failed to help dracula i just i screwed myself basically is what he did uh he's been contaminated by dracula's blood and he doesn't know what he is anymore his soul and his mind have been seized, as he says.
0: Yes. And honestly, all he cares about at this point is honoring his commitment to Nina to save her.
1: Right. And then he said after that, he'll surrender. Yeah.
0: Right, right. It's really, he just needs to stay alive long enough to save Nina.
1: But steinmuel found his medallion, yes. right? Like in his dead brother's hand.
0: Yeah, so Larry has decided to help Edelman with his goal of helping Nina. But meanwhile, back at the site of the crime, it was clenched in Siegfried's hand. It was like a pendant or something, but it's yeah. got Dr. Edelman's name on it.
1: That's all he need. That's all the evidence they need to form a mob.
0: Steinmuel's like, yeah, it's clear Edelman killed my brother. And you know, <laughs> Inspector Holtz is like, you know, five minutes ago, you thought it was Larry Talbot. Go home. (laughs)
1: and instead he's handing out torches because there's a shot of them like mobbing on the march
0: he's out in the street he's very in his own way like he's he's got a very calm voice he's not like screaming to the town but he's got this very calm creepy voice you know like this is a matter for us to handle now this is beyond the police
1: it's so unsettling because he's like we'll take it from here
0: the way he whips that crowd into a frenzy with that voice of his that's impressive that's all I'm going to say. Yep. So now with the mob on their way over to the house and Inspector Holtz on his way, it's time because there's a full moon tonight, right? It's to the next night. And yep. Larry needs to make sure that the procedure worked. So he steps out into the moonlight, wringing his hands the entire time, just waiting for the transformation. And after, you know, what, about 30 seconds of exposure to the moon, he doesn't change. And we know that the procedure was a success.
1: Yeah, I couldn't believe it. First of all, I couldn't believe that like, the moon rose like the sun very quickly too. Uh, But I also, I just didn't almost want to believe that they finally did it. They cured the Wolfman? Like, this is insane. Like, this is amazing. Like, I never would have ever in a million years thought that they could have cured the wolfman, but awesome, I guess. Awesome. I mean, like, <laughs> like I'm going to miss the wolfman, you know, like changing, but I'm happy for him. He can go live a normal life now and, and die eventually.
0: Is this the only time that you've ever seen a werewolf cured?
1: As far as I can remember right now, yeah. I can't think of another
0: instance where somebody who was afflicted with lycanthropy was effectively cured you know these movies always end with them being shot with a silver bullet or whatever i've never seen anything quite like this no okay i thought maybe it was just me this is the first time i've seen it too so with larry effectively cured of his lycanthropy they head back into the lab where dr edelman has transformed yet again back into his evil self he is Back to trying to resurrect the Frankenstein monster. I love this scene and how it looks. All the the lights, the machinery, the contrast, the shadows, all of it looks gorgeous.
1: I love it. I love it, man. I'm also glad we're getting back to the monster thing. But I was just thinking, you know, the doc did a couple transfusions on dracula like if we had more time we'll we'll just one of these tangents for a second it would have been nice to see him have these spells a little earlier for a little more limited amount of time and try and juice up the monster like kind of in secret right so we get a few more peeks at the monster there laying on the slab and good old glenn strange if that really is you
0: (laughs) i feel like this whole jekyll and hyde thing probably should have been introduced a little earlier I mean, it would have been fun to see this character, this like evil Mr. Hyde coexist in the same movie with Dracula. Yeah. He's only in here sort of as a replacement because we, we don't have Dracula anymore. But um it would have been cool to have like the wolfman, have Dracula, the Frankenstein monster and this like crazy mad scientist all together for at least a little bit. You know, maybe even uses the Frankenstein monster to kill Dracula in the end, you know, as revenge for doing this to him or mm. something like that. That would have been cool. Nice. But yeah, so Nina walks in on him and apparently he really hates being interrupted. So poor Nina is strangled to death right there in the lab couldn't believe it from a screenwriting perspective i kind of like the mean spiritedness of that she died by his hand
1: i mean it's super poetic because like the whole movie he's been talking about how she's the whole reason he's doing this is to cure her and he's just been getting sidetracked the whole time and then he ends up killing her like that's great writing i I don't know i don't know how that showed up in this movie but like i think that's awesome
0: i think because he set up so many times that like that she was the priority he kept wanting to come back to her and help her That yeah. yeah. she had to die in the end that that's the only satisfying end for her but
1: that he kills her when all he wanted to do was cure her is like great writing
0: he strangles her and then sort of tosses her down into that, like, basement stairwell pretty brutally. Oh, yeah. And just as that happens, Inspector Holtz, Larry Talbot, Melitza they all, like, come piling in through the door. There's a great shot of Edelman sort of throwing halts into like a switchboard and like the sparks just fly like that's such a such a fun effect
1: yeah the monster jumps up and starts just like killing everything in sight like all these cops just get wasted within like two seconds (laughs) they run into the room and they just instantly
0: get killed and larry is the hero larry's the hero of this movie he doesn't kill anybody as a werewolf and so he gets to fire a few rounds into dr edelman and kill him.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like it's been a while since someone's been shot to death in one of these movies. You know, it's pretty wild that uh, yeah, Larry, uh Larry's the hero.
0: And for some reason, now the the Frankenstein monster doesn't know Doctor Edelman from Adam, but I guess feels some sort of allegiance to him for bringing him back to life.
1: You know what I would have loved is if the monster looked at Larry and recognized him and was like rematch.
0: He should. I mean, but he doesn't say anything. But he does come for Larry as soon as he makes eye contact but from this point on like the lab goes up in flames the Frankenstein monster is there to just add to the destruction everyone rushes outside and the lab just goes up in flames the monster reaching toward the camera is how this movie ends
1: yeah it's just super duper abrupt like there's movies that just kind of end and then there's movies that like end before they're over and like I feel like this one did that I'm like wait what it's done one more shot
0: everybody's story is over by this point. It's only the Frankenstein monster who like just woke up and is like, Hey, I'm here to party everybody. And then the movie's over, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, no, it's just really, it's funny though, how you put it like that. And like, okay. So like we've seen the end of Dracula, like Larry, presumably he's safe. He's out. So like, we got to kill off the Frankenstein. And as soon as that's done, we can all go home. I, I just wanted one more shot of like Larry in the moonlight, With his woman, arm in arm, everything's going to be good from now on, kind of ending. Like I said, one last shot. Otherwise, this was a lot of fun. I didn't know it was going to happen.
0: I was just about to say, this is a good place to stop. Is there anything else you'd like to add about House of Dracula, Mike?
1: I mean, I'm basically going to consider this a redo of Mm -hmm. House of Frankenstein. Even though I liked House of Frankenstein a lot, it just seems like they had too many ideas, and they wanted to make more than one movie with all these uh monsters together you know they wanted to do this crossover and hell or high water they were gonna get it done and continuity be damned throw that book out the window no one's paying attention to that in the 40s anyway let's just do what we want to do and i'm glad they did and we sort of get a very interesting kind of like case study if you want to watch the two house movies back to back you get two very different tones i think Mm -hmm. yep Uh, a lot of great performances and you just see how different the same idea can be executed again it just feels unprecedented in that way even though it's officially a sequel i just have a hard time thinking of it that way and an easier time thinking of it as like let's just make the same movie again like it was such a good idea like let's just do it again that's fine i love that it's great i had a I had a much better time than i was anticipating um this movie's gorgeous the acting's great i love caradine as dracula so i'm glad he's around i like Lon Chaney's mustache and I really love Onswell Stevens so yeah all in all I was happy here
0: I'm with you. I think that's better to think of this as a redo than a sequel but just because of like how much they both have in common. They're both very, very similar movies. I just wish House of Dracula had had a different title considering how long Dracula lasts in this movie. Like that always is going to strike me as strange to have your main character gone with like a third of the movie left. Why is this called House of Dracula if we're not going to make this movie about Dracula? It's more Edelman's story than anything else. And so the title should probably reflect that but this has everything in it that i liked from house of frankenstein plus an additional monster so you know if i'm in the mood for one of these big monster mashups house of dracula is probably the one i'm going to put on over House of Frankenstein. But they are both really fun. I mean, I don't regret anything that I said in our House of Frankenstein episode. I do think it's a really good time. It's good to see Karloff again. But just generally speaking, I think that House of Dracula brings more of what you want from having all these characters together than House of Frankenstein does. I second that. All right. Well, before we sign off, I want to address our listener mail. So as I mentioned last episode, we got an email from our friend Brian Rodriguez, who hosts the High School Slumber Party podcast. And he also hosts Uncle Francis's Wine Cellar with you, Mike.
1: Yes, co-hosts. Yep.
0: He wrote us a letter. I'm going to reread it now. Hi there. First time, long time. Big fan of you boys. Keep up the good work. Quick question. Obviously, you guys love the OG Universal Monsters, but who are your top five? non-universal monsters. I want a top five from you both. Thanks. So Mike, why don't you go first here? I'm curious to see what your top five monsters are. Why don't
1: we go one for one?
0: Okay. So mine are not in any particular order. I think I put them in alphabetical order. Okay. But we can go one for one if you like.
1: Yeah. Cause mine are also not in any real particular order how can i pick but i tried to find ones that weren't going to be as obvious that i still loved as much as some of the heavy hitters i'll just say that and i think i can guess two of yours right
0: so i think i know one of yours i will say that one of mine is a universal monster but is not part of the classic monsters so i'm gonna say that's okay
1: Is it Jaws? It is. I didn't mean to turn this into a game or anything, but like... No,
0: it's okay. There's no way I wasn't going to put the shark from Jaws on my list because, you know, even though the movie is arguably not entirely a horror movie, I think the shark is without a doubt one of the most iconic movie monsters of all time. That shark scared the shit out of me as a kid, scares the shit out of me today, and uh, has stuck with me my entire life. So it's only right that he goes on my list.
1: Oh, I love it. Do you want to guess one of mine or should I just say?
0: <laughs> I was going to say Godzilla has to be on your list.
1: Yeah, I mean, he he's the most obvious one, I think, that I had to put on here probably the heaviest hitter that you're gonna hear about tonight, the most recognizable name, yeah is Godzilla and like I mean I don't know part of me just can't help it. I've always loved Godzilla but as I grew older, like I came to realize like he meant so many different things depending yeah. on the context. I always enjoyed that about him depending on the decade and the era that he's reflecting. it always changes his style and his significance and stuff. so like aside from just being constantly redesigned to look even more badass than previously. He's thematic. He's got a message and all that going along with him, too. So
0: Totally. So I did have Godzilla on my list initially, but I was like, Mike's going to put Godzilla on his list. And then I did some thinking, right? When I looked at the other monsters on my list, I probably enjoy them more than I like Godzilla. But I also wanted to have like something kind of in that category. And King Kong has always been one of my all-time favorite movies. It's one of the most important movies to me. You know, I think I see that question float around on social media you know, like if you could go back in time and see a movie in its original theatrical release, what would you go see? My answer is always King Kong. And I think it comes down to the fact that it came out during the Great Depression you know, people didn't have a lot of money, but the one thing they could afford to do was go to the movies and to go to the theater to see something like that on the screen had to have been absolutely incredible. You know, it's got the stop-motion animation. There's so much of about it that I love. And Kong has always been very important to me. When you put them together, like in the modern, like Kong versus Godzilla, like I, I'm probably more into Godzilla in those movies, but the original King Kong movie is just so important to me. So I put King Kong on my list.
1: Awesome. All right. So I'll go next with the number two here. Not initially from movies, but that's okay, right? Like we don't have to stick to films.
0: Well, he said non-universal monsters. So So I think we can leave it up to our own interpretation.
1: All right, then I have to represent the hometown and go with the Jersey Devil. Hey! The 13th child of Mother Lee herself, some would say, but yeah, just always was uh, enamored with that legend and folklore being from New Jersey, obviously the mascot for the Jersey Devil hockey team, which is a big deal in New Jersey, but kind of... Uh, one of those cryptids that sort of has global recognition on some level, you know, like you could kind of say Jersey devil in Europe. And I think there's a reference to that, you know, Um, maybe the hockey team, but even beyond that, it's like, well, what's that logo? Oh, where did that come from? It's a real legend or whatnot. Always love that. So Jersey represent,
0: you know, I didn't think to put folk monsters in my list. uh, So I'm glad you mentioned that me being from Jersey, I also have a soft spot for the Jersey devil. So I also included Jason Voorhees, You know I think of the slasher villains as monsters and you know of the big three the Halloween Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street franchises Jason Voorhees has always stuck out to me like he's always the one I'm excited to see although I should probably admit that I think Freddy Krueger is the more ingenious character when he works really well he works really well. But when he doesn't, he's kind of a joke. Jason Voorhees is always very consistent. He's my favorite of the big slashers. So I felt he's going to make my list.
1: Nice. I laid off those guys for some reason, even though I love them to death. I couldn't really pick one, you know, I didn't want to play favorites in that in that area. But here's one that I thought might also be on your list. It definitely had to make my list because I think it's just conceptually maybe one of my all time, maybe my favorite I don't know this is a tough call uh but the thing from another world has to be on this list which is the creature from John Carpenter's The Thing Yeah with a pseudo remake of the Howard Hawks film, Thing from Another World, the vegetable monster with a big forehead, yeah. the eight foot tall man who's afraid of fire. But if you're seriously into horror and sci fi and haven't seen that movie, I don't know if you're seriously into horror and sci fi at that point. But, you know, everyone talks about this as an example of things of practical effects that still hold up. And it's like, why do CGI when you can do this? And it's like, well, it kind of at this point feels a bit like a lost art, if you ask me. And like, there's proof of how good it could be and how creative 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 and mind-bending creature design can get. Like, it's just no holds barred. I mean, loosely based on somewhat like Lovecraftian mythos and design as well, nothing really has ever kind of come close to that. Things have tried to replicate it. There's been a pre-make, but yeah, I think I definitely had to recognize the thing on this list.
0: Yeah, the thing made my list also, although John Carpenter's the thing is is the one that I hold most near and dear to my heart. I really weighed whether or not it should make the list because you never really see the thing. It's mostly actors Performances that carry the thing through the movie. But at the same time, a monster is a monster, whether you see it or not. And that movie's terrifying. So I put the thing on my list as well. Now I'm feeling like I need to mention, I'm not going to replace the thing. It's going to stay on my list, but I do have an honorable mention just to have an extra monster in here. But my fifth monster is the Xenomorph from Alien.
1: Oh, good one.
0: I saw Alien when I was young, too young, probably. We had like the box set and we had all three of the original three. And I said, all right, I'm going to sit in my basement. I turn the lights off and I watched Alien. And it was the most terrifying, thrilling experience of my life at that point. And just that whole creature design and its evolution from an egg to like the face hugger to the full xenomorph is brilliant. So, I mean, thanks, H.R. Giger, for that. But yeah, so the, the xenomorph, my number five. Okay, so, all right,
1: this is going to get a little weird. So, for one of them, I really had to go here. I mean, this monster might have been one of the first monsters I've ever laid eyes on as a very little tyke, really cool looking, very scary, was never really exactly sure what he was. He is a large, hairy ogre who towers above his human and Muppet co-stars. His name is Sweetums, folks, and he (laughs) is a (laughs) Muppet.
0: Oh, what a great choice.
1: I can't help it. I see this thing. I don't know. Something like just hits me inside every time Sweetums is on screen and I just love him the most. He might be my favorite Muppet. So I had to include him on this list and give him some dues and you know, people got to recognize, I guess.
0: That's a great choice. You really thought outside the box. I kind of stuck to like horror movies, but I love that answer.
1: You don't want to know some of the the things on my list here. I'm going to take it home with something to this day I mean, I know how they did it, but you watch it and you still go, how did they do that? And it is just one of the best movies ever. And I saw it as a little kid in theaters. And afterwards, I was like, I can't believe my parents understand that I understand the difference between like reality and fiction and movies and stuff so much that they brought me to this movie and knew I could handle it and thought I'd be cool and everything. I'm going with Audrey 2. Nice. She is a mean green mother from outer space, especially with that original ending. Nothing can stop her. I love it. You know, she sings. She eats people. She's extremely smart and outwits all the humans and everything. And it's just like such an amazing movie, such an incredible creature design. And yeah,
0: that is a fantastic list. I love all of your monsters. Audrey Two definitely could have made my list, but uh, an honorable mention for me, one that I, I I watch this movie every year. So I feel like it deserves a spot close. If not in my top five, definitely probably my top 10. I love The Blob.
1: Oh, great call, definitely. I
0: love the Blob. I love the 1950s Blob. I love its 1980s remake. Those movies just prove that you can make a monster out of anything, even a big <laughs> pile of red jelly, you know, like could still be scary. So,
1: that's so funny then because one of my honorable mentions is sort of I feel like a successor to the Blob in many ways in in its mundane yet ridiculous yet also somewhat terrifying nature the killer tomatoes oh yeah like i just love the idea of killer tomatoes like as a joke and everything and yet an enormous you know house-sized tomato with teeth is no joke
0: <laughs> wonderful that's a great honorable mention so these are my top five favorite non-universal movie monsters today you know like it might yeah. change next week these are always fluid i i love all monsters, so to narrow it down to five was really tough, but I could answer these questions all day. So thank you, Brian, for writing in and submitting that question. We do have another piece of listener mail I want to read. This is not a question. This is just an email we got from our friend Rob Kelly, friend of the pod. He uh, designed the logo. He designed our logo. So he says, based on what you mentioned last episode about the original script for The Mummy's Curse, I had an idea for maybe what could have made for a really fun take on the series. Somebody finds a mummy's corpse and sells it to a sideshow as a cheap scare gag. From there, the body is passed from person to person, situation to situation. A scarecrow, a wax museum, a Hollywood prop, etc. With no one recognizing that this is a real mummy. Finally, some Dr. Frankenstein type dude gets a hold of it and finds a way to revive it, but the mummy is now super pissed at being treated so cavalierly by society and goes on a rampage. I think that might have been a fun way to inject some new characters and locales into the series. On a side note, I'm really disappointed that the mummy movie set in the 1990s, that's the mummy's curse if you remember, (laughs) I'm disappointed that it didn't have a scene of the mummy killing people set to Smash Mouth's All-Star. (laughs) what a missed opportunity
1: that's a great one i actually quite like that idea that he came up with the the mummy sort of being passed around and then like going backwards and taking out everyone who kind of like profited off of him in some way or another
0: (laughs) the thing about the mummy's curse that always strikes us weird is is that they went from massachusetts to louisiana with no real explanation right i kind of like this travelogue idea where the mummy moves from massachusetts to maybe New York City, to Topeka, to Los Angeles, you know, like all over the place. And then we get to see the country with the mummy. The rest of the movie could have the same like sort of plot beats, but it would have been fun to see the mummy uh, going on, on the road.
1: Absolutely. The mummy on the road. That's what they could have called it. <laughs>
0: so thank you, Rob, for submitting that. Again, if you would like to contact us and have your questions or comments read on the air, Give us an email at the us at gmail.com. Time for us to wrap up this show. We will be back on Friday, October 28th for She-Wolf of London, which is like the final death rattle for Universal's legitimate horror films.
1: All right. And it'll also be like two days before Halloween. That'll be our Halloween episode.
0: Oh, and if you're listening to the show as it comes out, it should be September 30th. Tomorrow is our two-year anniversary. It was on October 1st, 2020, that we first announced The Monsters That Made Us, and we could not be more grateful to still be doing this two years later. Thank you for listening, and join us in October for She-Wolf of London. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at MonsterMadePod, on Instagram and Facebook at The Monsters That Made Us. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Colon. Mike, where can listeners find you?
1: You can find me on Twitter at the underscore Mikester, and then you can find all the other shows I'm on on cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram.
0: If you enjoyed this episode and you want to become a Patreon supporter, you can do so at patreon.com slash the monsters that made us. You can also support the show by giving us a five star rating and review on iTunes. And we can't forget about our t-shirts on TeePublic. You can find the link for that in our aforementioned Twitter and Instagram bios. For all other things Cage Club related, just head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Stay spooky, everybody.